Well, thank God for times like that, where we can just center our hearts on who God is, where we get to remember his goodness to us, and we get to prepare our hearts to to ask, what is it that God is going to say to us today through his word, through the scriptures, which I'm going to read for us in a moment. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be in the last passage of 1 Timothy 3, verses 14, 15, and 16. So you can read along in your Bibles, or if you don't have a Bible, you can look up on the screen as the verses are going to be up there as I read them for us. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory." This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, just as you have spoken, we pray that you speak today. We pray that, as Andy just prayed, that you reach us in the deepest, um, loneliest parts of ourselves that really need a touch from you this morning. We pray that you lead and unite us as a church family and that you guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a question. Have you ever been in the middle of doing something that was challenging and suddenly realized you had no idea why you were doing it? (laughs) That can be pretty debilitating. Um, There are two times in my life that I've tried to read the book Moby Dick. Um, Although the first time, I don't even know if it's really fair to say I tried to read it. I was in high school. It was assigned. Um, I gave it not very much of an effort at all and then decided I wasn't into it. And a friend had the cliff notes. And so I read those. It's the only time in high school I did it. I don't recommend it, although I did get an A on the paper. So I don't know what that means. Um, And then just sort of moved on. I wasn't interested in it. And I am a reader. I I like literature. I read a lot. And so later on, I I was looking at different classics that I hadn't read. And I said, I I should read Moby Dick. People talk about Moby Dick. It's this big deal, all the metaphors and the imagery and everything like that. And so I dug in and I started slogging through that book. And, you know, sometimes you're reading a book and it's like eating candy. It's just you're excited about it. Um, That was not this time. Oh my gosh, I was laboring through this book. I wasn't enjoying it at all. Um, I was, this is how bad it was. I, was. I was about 80 to 85% of the way through. And suddenly I had that realization, I don't know why I'm doing this. <laughs> it's not because I'm enjoying it, because I'm not. It's not because anybody's assigned it to me. I'm not in school anymore. And I'm not even in a book club where we're gonna like get together at the end of the month and all discuss things with it. Nobody is holding me accountable on this. I'm not enjoying it. So even though I could kind of see the finish line from where I was and had invested a lot, I put it away and haven't touched it since. When you're in the middle of doing something difficult and you suddenly realize that you're not sure why you're doing it, that's a recipe for giving up. And let me just say, part of what we're going to talk about today is how we get back to the why 
of why it is that we're doing what we're doing. And for some of you this morning, this is important because you're at a point right now where you're in the battle in certain areas of your life and you realize, I, I, I don't wanna think about this too much because if I start to think about this, I'll realize I'm not sure I have a good reason to continue to persevere. Maybe right now you're dealing with relational issues where you're kind of saying, why do I continue? Why do I keep trying to be kind and to be conciliatory and to be forgiving towards this person and towards these people when all I get is garbage from them? Why do I continue down that road of kindness and sacrifice when it doesn't seem to be working? Some of you right now have things that you're praying about and that you have been faithfully praying about and you're starting to deal with the nagging question, why do I continue to do this? Why do I continue to pray when I don't seem to be seeing the result that I've been hoping to get? Some of you are in the battle with sin right now, and you feel really tempted, and you're thinking about just how easy and how nice it would be to give in in different areas of your life, and you're starting to wonder, why am I fighting so hard? Why am I fighting for purity? Why am I fighting for honesty? Why am I fighting for integrity? Why is it that I'm doing these things? Maybe you're evangelizing your neighbors and you're reaching out with the gospel and you're just not getting a warm response. You're beginning to think, why is it that I'm doing the things that I'm doing? And maybe even for some of you, you're like, no, I don't think about that. I don't think about that because I'm afraid if I started to think about it, I'd realize that I'm not sure. And life is going pretty well. Maybe you're saying, all right, I'm reading my Bible. I'm here at church. I I attend a life group, I'm part of different things, my my life is pretty smooth, I don't have any sin that's like overwhelming my life right now, things are pretty smooth, I don't have any desire to think about the deeper question because this all seems to be sort of working right now. The significant thing for us to realize is that, that if you find yourself in the middle of doing something difficult and you realize you're not sure why you're doing it, that's a recipe for you to give up. And here we are in the middle of 1 Timothy, is really the middle passage, and the Apostle Paul, in his letter to his protege Timothy, waits until the middle of the letter to spell out the why. To say, this is why I'm writing you this letter. And I, I hope this isn't true, but some of you might be sitting there saying, yeah, we've been in this for like 12 weeks. Why is it that we're doing this? Why is it that we're spending so much time in this letter? I mean, there's lots of things that we could be talking about here when we're gathered as a church family. I mean, there's things going on in the world that we could talk about that, that maybe seem a bit more pressing than some of the things in this letter. Why is it that we're spending time in this letter? And Paul is gonna lay out for Timothy as he's been walking through all of these things, Timothy, this is why I'm writing to you. In case these instructions are starting to feel overwhelming, or in case you see your mind wandering, or in case you want to focus on things that seem more pressing, this is why I'm writing this to you. And and I'm actually going to give you a little preview, because the one why leads to a couple other whys. Paul says there's a reason why I'm writing you this letter, Timothy, and this letter is important because it has to do with the church. Which then brings up a second question that would say, well, the letter is only important then if the church is important. So I start with why is the letter important? It's important because of the church. Well, why is the church important? And from there, Paul is gonna say something along the lines of the church is important because of the message that the church has for the world. And so the third why that we get to deal with is why is it that this message that the church has for the world is so important? 
And so a couple things before we start to get into this. First of all, I'd say if, if you're a believer in Jesus, this is a significant passage. This is a significant time for us to peel back and say, all right, maybe I've been going through the motions or maybe I've been thinking about throwing in the towel and I need this reminder. I need to get back to the center of why is it that I'm called to do the things that I've been doing. And if you're not a Christian, you're gonna get to go through some of the things and set aside some of the things that maybe you think are at the center of the Christian faith and to find out what really is at the center that drives us to do what we do. Like three questions. Why is the letter important? Why is the church important? And then why is the truth important? And so we'll start with this first one, but, but before I even do it, I'll tell you where we're gonna land. Where we're gonna land is on the 12th house rule for the church of Jesus, and that's the house rule that we display the gospel. We'll end up there, but we have a little bit of work to do before we get there. So we start with this first question. All right, Paul's about to say why he wrote this letter. This is great. Not all books of the Bible do this, where the author just says, here's why I wrote this. Paul does it for us. Verse, 16, uh, verse 14, he says, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Paul says, Timothy, here's the reason why I'm writing this to you. And then he says, all right, Timothy, I'm hoping pretty soon to be standing right here with you. And some of you know that the word hope in the Bible means something different than the, word, the, the way that we use it in normal life, where Paul isn't just saying, I, I hope I'm there. Paul's saying, I expect to be there. I expect to be with you soon, Timothy, but it's possible that something would delay me. It's possible that I'll get delayed because there's gonna be some emergency at some other church and I need to go over there and I need to deal with that or there might be an emergency because more persecution might break out or there might be something that delays me because you know, from time to time I get arrested and so that would delay me. So it's possible that I won't get to be with you as soon. I wanna be standing right there next to you in Ephesus and helping to lead and direct God's people but it might not happen as quickly as I'd like for it to happen. So if I'm not able to get there, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. We've talked about this throughout this series so far, and we've called the series In This House because what Paul is doing in 1 Timothy is what he describes right here. He is giving the house rules for the church. He's saying this is how people conduct themselves in the household of God. This is how you live life as a church family. And we've been going through it for 11 weeks now, right up until now. We started all the way back at the beginning and kind of gave an overview and said, all right, house rule number one, we love the church. We're not customers, we're not consumers, we're members, we're brothers and sisters, we're involved. We love the church. And we moved on from there and said, all right, and also we cling to truth. We're not just looking for something that's relevant to what I'm going through right at this exact moment. We're looking for the eternal truth of God revealed through his word. And we talked about how in that eternal truth, the third house rule is that we revel in grace. We celebrate that we're brought into the family of God, not because we accomplished something, but because Jesus accomplished something for us. And because of that house rule number four, we fight for faith. We're not passive, we are actively fighting to hold on to the truth that God has revealed to us. And then as we got into chapter two, there were some more kind of practical house rules. So we talked about the fact that we pray. And we don't just pray for the people in our immediate family or immediate sphere, we pray for rulers and we pray for government officials, whether we like them or not, we pray. And as we pray, we also learned that we have the house rule that we build each other up. 
We don't come to a church gathering asking, how can I orient everything around how I'm feeling at this moment? I come to a church gathering saying, how can I build up my brothers and sisters with what God has given to me? And part of what flowed out of that is the house rule that we embrace our roles. We believe that God has made men and women perfectly different that we are made in his image, that we are absolutely equal, but we're strongest when we embrace our differences and combine forces and partner together to put the gospel on display. So we got into chapter three, we talked about the house rule that we value leadership, we take it seriously. And the way that we take it seriously is by valuing things like character and consistency more than charisma and skills. Towards the end, in the passage last week, we talked about how we serve one another, how we don't simply come into our church family and say, how can I use the things that God has given me for my own advancement? We say, everything that I have belongs, first of all, to God, and secondly, to God's people. And so we come with the attitude of serving one another. These are the house rules of the church. And by the way, next week, we're going to be at our fall kickoff. We're going to have three weeks where we take a break from 1 Timothy, and then we're going to come right back to it for nine weeks, so more house rules coming. We're gonna talk about this is how we live. But Paul says, this is important. I want you to know the house rules of the body of Christ. I want you to put it up on the wall. I want you to talk about it all the time. I want you to implement it into the structure of what you do. This is what life is like for the people of God. But once again, th- this is only important to us if we believe that the church should be important to us. Um, quick, quick confession. I love pyology. It's not really a confession, just wanted to talk about it. Um, I love pyology, I love going there. Thankfully, my whole family loves going there. Yeah, everybody gets to get the pizza exactly as they like it. Um, I love going there, I really enjoy it. Um, I don't care at all what pyology's mission statement is. I don't know what it is, I don't care what it is. I don't care at all what pyology has as far as their core values or way of doing business in the back room and what they talk about in staff meetings. I don't care at all. When I go to pyology, what do I care about? I care about getting the pizza. I care about getting a good pizza that's gonna taste good and that I'm going to enjoy and be happy with and get at a price that's maybe not exactly reasonable, but reasonable enough that I can keep going there. That's all I care about. I am a customer when I go to pyology. I don't care about what's behind the curtain. And some of us can look at our relationship with the church in a very similar way. We can say, all right, here's the deal. I'm here just for the religious goods and services. I'm here because I need a shot in the arm so that I can kind of keep living the way that I think that I'm supposed to be living. I need some good advice of how to handle things with my family or how to handle different bad habits that I've gotten into. I need some good advice, kind of maybe in the Proverbs about how to handle money and how to handle tricky things in relationships. I want some good programs for my kids. I want some donuts, not gonna lie. Enjoy that also. I'm here for the religious goods and services. So the house rules don't really care about that don't really care about what's going on behind the curtain. I'm just here to get some stuff that will help me along the way. What I want to say is, if that is the mentality you find yourself gravitating towards, I want to invite you to view the church through completely different eyes. Because in the second part of this passage, Paul is going to lay out the profound identity of the church. So we move on to the second question. We got the house rules, but that's only important if the church is important. So why should I believe that the church is important? 
And Paul says, if I am delayed, I'm writing these things to you so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And I'll show you this as we walk through it. Paul says three profound things about the identity of the church just in this one verse. I'll tell you them now and then I'll show you them. He says, we are God's family. He says, we are God's dwelling place and we are God's messengers. The first one will seem pretty obvious. He says, I'm talking about how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. He's talking about life in the body of Christ and he refers to the church as God's household. And if you were to look back earlier in chapter three into the elder qualifications, one of the things that Paul said is the elder needs to be able to manage his own household well, because if he can't manage his own household well, why are we going to entrust him with leadership in God's household? When it says we're God's household, think less of a building and think more of a family. Saying we function as God's family. And this is true throughout the New Testament. This is, this is one of the ruling analogies of what the church is. We are the family of God. God is our father because we have been bought our entrance into the family through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that means all of us are brothers and sisters with one another. This overcomes our family of origin. This overcomes our natural differences. In fact, real quick, if you want to look this up later, Matthew chapter 12, there's a profound short story about Jesus reinforcing this truth. He's given a message to a whole bunch of people who are gathered together, and while this happens, some people come up to Jesus and they say, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside wanting to talk to you. Assuming that this means that Jesus will stop what he's doing immediately and go talk to his immediate family. And Jesus responds by saying, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then he points to all the disciples who are there and he says, these are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. Jesus says something profound. He says, spiritual family supersedes biological family. This is why within the body of Christ, we're able to move beyond the tribes that we normally find ourselves in. That's why the racial divide between Jew and Gentile is broken down. That's why we're brought together as the people of God because our spiritual connection supersedes our biological connection. And, and just real quick on this, for some of you, that this is profoundly important and for some of you, this doesn't feel profoundly important, but it is, and I'll tell you why. Um, for some of you, the idea that you're not just gathered with fellow customers at Life Bible Fellowship Church, but that you're with brothers and sisters is deeply important to you because you do not have a family who is supportive of your walk with Christ. Maybe you've lost certain people through death. Maybe you're a lifelong single and you're just feeling a little bit more lonely. Or maybe you're divorced and you're feeling a little bit more lonely. Or maybe you're like, I got lots of family. None of them walk with Jesus. None of them understand what I'm trying to do. They're all mystified and they kind of mock me for some of the decisions that I make. And you're lonely. You need God's people. You need your spiritual family. You need those aunts and uncles and cousins and brothers and sisters and moms and dads who are gonna partner with you and be there with you as you go through that. You're not alone. But here's what I wanna say on the other side. There's some of us that are like, spiritual family, that's nice, I'm good. Because your biological family is very stable and there's a lot of joy in your biological family. And praise God for that, if that's what's going on. 
For any of us who are in that situation, what we need to do is we need to remember that there's people who are part of the body of Christ that need to be included in that. Look around your sphere. Look around your life group. Look around your Bible study. Look around the people that God has brought into your sphere because there's people who desperately need to be welcomed in to that stability and joy that's part of being with the family of God. Part of being God's household means that people who would otherwise be lonely are welcomed into the family through others reaching out to them. He says, we're God's family. That's pretty important. That's more important than just being customers. We're God's family. And secondly... We are God's dwelling place. He says, the church of the living God. This most commentators point towards the idea, this is sort of temple talk here. And in the Old Testament, the temple would have been viewed as the house of the living God, where the living God dwells. Not the God of all the idols, not the God of all the nations, but the living God who created everything. And what Paul now is saying, and, and the word church, we, we use it a lot, it doesn't mean a building. The word church means an assembly. It means a people. We are the assembly of the living God. Now, if you go back and read the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul also wrote, there's two different times that Paul says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. One time, it's very, very individualistic. It's in chapter six. He's talking about fleeing sexual immorality. And he says, flee sexual immorality because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So it's very individual. The Holy Spirit lives within you as an individual Christian. The other time that he uses the phrase, though, is in chapter three. And he's talking about church unity. And he's talking about divisions. And what he says there is, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in your midst. He's given us a different image. He's saying, don't just think of it as, I got the Holy Spirit, you got the Holy Spirit, you got the Holy Spirit. We're all a bunch of individuals with the Holy Spirit. He says, there's a special sense in which the Holy Spirit dwells with the gathered people of God. And, and even, think about it this way. So if we believe Jesus, we believe that every one of us, every one of us who has been rescued by Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And so if right now you're going through a trial and you're like, gosh, I need God's help. I need to figure out how to handle this trial. I want to handle it well. I want to walk through this well. So, so I need help in this. Thankfully, I have the Holy Spirit. And thank God, thankfully, you have the Holy Spirit. But you know what's even better than you on your own trying to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit in isolation? It's you being around a whole bunch of other people who also have the Holy Spirit, it's you praying with fellow believers who are guided by the Holy Spirit and are gonna see things that you're not seeing, who are gonna be able to correct you when you're not really listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit because it's not very pleasant to you to listen to at that time. What's better than an individual Christian with the Holy Spirit is a whole bunch of Christians with the Holy Spirit gathered together. And there are times, and I know this is true of lots of us, there are times where I feel apathetic, or ambivalent, I just sort of feel like, yeah, I'm doing stuff, I do believe all of this, but I'm not really feeling it, I'm not really feeling passionate. And then on a Sunday morning, and I've told you before I do this, some worship leaders say, don't, don't look, it's just you and God, don't look around, I always look around. I'm just telling you now, I always look around. And I look around because when I look around, I've been here long enough that I know a lot of you, and when I see you lifting your voices and giving your hearts in worship, I know what it has cost you to do that. 
I know the sacrifices you've made. I know the things that God has walked you through. I know the ways that you're trusting God in that way. And my faith is built up by somebody else being led by the Holy Spirit. What's better than you as an individual in isolation is you around a whole bunch of other believers filled with the Holy Spirit. We are God's family. We're God's dwelling place. And again, with the dwelling place, not this building, this people. And then the third thing that he says, he says the pillar and the foundation of the truth, we are God's messengers. Or in a way, you might even say we are God's plan. The pillar and the foundation of the truth. And the two Greek words that are translated there, it goes back and forth. There's a sense of saying, all right, what it's talking about, now we are talking about the image of a building. And so what it's talking about is, all right, a, a pillar holds up the building. So it's talking about us upholding the truth. But the word for foundation is also sometimes translated bulwark which has the idea of protection. Saying, all right, the church, the people of God, uphold the truth of the gospel and protect the truth of the gospel. They're all about saying God has a message from, for the world. God has a message for the world that we need to get out there. So we're gonna hold that up for the world to see and we're gonna protect it from the error and from the lies that would come to subvert it. We are not only God's family, we are God's plan A to get the message out to the world. The pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now, uh, what I said before, let me just say it again. All right, if we go back and say, all right, Paul told us why he's writing the letter. He's writing the letter because he wants us to know the house rules of the church. That only matters if the church is important to us. So why is the church important to us? Church is important to us because it's God's family. It's, It's God's dwelling place. It's where God's mission is taking place. But then the question we have to ask with then is, all right, this message that the church has, this truth that Paul is talking about, why is that? important to us. And that's where Paul goes in verse 16. And this is where he really lays out the idea that I've already alluded to. We display the gospel. He says in verse 16, building off what he just said, the pillar and the the foundation of the truth, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And some of you may have a different Bible translation in front of you. The the really simple Greek here would would be much more simple than it said here. It would just be beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. That then IV translates it as as if what Paul is saying here is, all right, the the mystery, sort of the message behind why we live godly lives, which is not a bad translation, but the more simple idea is simply that, all right, there is a message behind the whole concept of who God is. And the word mystery here doesn't mean something that we can't figure out. The word mystery means something we didn't used to know that now has been made known. The mystery of godliness is great. And by by the way, just as a freebie, um, if you read Acts chapter 19, you see a story about Ephesus, where this letter was written to, where, where Timothy is serving. In Ephesus, there was a temple to the goddess Artemis. And there's a riot that happens while Paul is there. And while this riot is happening, all the idolaters are calling out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I just want to say, I don't think it's a mistake that Paul then in this letter says, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. You're not going to find any life in that idol temple. But you are going to find the message of life through the church. 
And what Paul does next is he quotes what most people believe to be a first century creedal statement. It's got six lines to it, and we'll walk through it, and then I'll try to help make sense of it. It says, he appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Give six statements that are clearly meant to be about Jesus. Now, here's why this is so profound, what Paul does here. Paul's built this up, and he said, you know, the church is important. This letter is important because it tells you how to live life in the church. The church is important. The church should be important to you because it's the family of God, and also because the church upholds the message that God has given to the world. And now I'm going to tell you, I, Paul, I'm going to tell you the message that God has given to the world. And at this point, we might accept Paul to say the message that the church has for the world is clean up your act. For the love of everything holy, stop what you're doing. Start treating each other better. Stop divorcing each other. Stop all this sexual immorality. Stop all of these things and start living cleaner lives. We might think, isn't that the message the church has for the world? Apparently not for Paul. He doesn't say anything about commands. He doesn't say anything about morality here. So even though commands and morality are part of what we get in Scripture, To Paul, it's not at the center of the message. He also doesn't say, here's the message that the church has for the world. It's a message of self-discovery. It's about the idea that if you believe it, you can achieve it. And it's about the idea if you can really get in touch with who God has made you to be way down deep inside that will liberate you to live your greatest life now. It's about inner peace and attainment and overcoming your addictions with your mind. It's about all those things. Paul doesn't say anything about self-help. He doesn't say anything about self-discovery. Paul says, the church has a message for the world. And here's that message. God did something when he sent Jesus. The central Christian message, and this shouldn't be a a huge surprise to us, is about Jesus. And not just about what Jesus taught us, but about what Jesus did and why it matters. And so we get these six lines. Paul says, here's our message to the world. Our message to the world is all about Jesus. I'm gonna give you six lines about it. And scholars debate how to understand how these six lines work together. The, the best way that I saw that, that I believe is the right way to understand this is it's, it's two three-line groups. Three lines that go together and then three lines that go together. And so I'm gonna walk them through in that way. The first three lines are about what Jesus did here on earth. He appeared in the flesh. Jesus took on humanity. He appeared in the flesh, and we could look at that and say, oh, well, that's just talking about Christmas. That's talking about the whole idea of him being born as a baby. And fair enough, but built in with this is not just the idea of Christmas. Built in with this is the idea of Good Friday. Built in with this is the idea that he took on flesh so that eventually he could suffer in the flesh for us. Our message is God's son appeared in the flesh to suffer for us. And point number two is God's son was vindicated by the spirit, which almost certainly has to do with the idea of resurrection. So he suffered in the flesh, he appeared in the flesh, he was vindicated by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans chapter eight, the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now lives inside of us. The spirit was instrumental in getting Jesus up out of that grave. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit. Line three, when it says he was seen by angels, probably is a reference to the ascension. 
that after Jesus was raised from the dead and he went around and taught the apostles, he then was raised up. He then ascended to heaven. Now, I'll tell you something now, and we're going to see it in the second part of this too. If you were to sum up, to just say, all right, what's a quick summary of that story that we just heard? It would be something like this. With Jesus, there was suffering and then there was glory. With Jesus, he came to suffer for us. And then after that, he was vindicated by God and he experienced glory. And that same parallel idea follows the next three lines which talk about the impact of Jesus' life and what happened as a result. It says, he was preached among the nations. And you think of the apostles, this is going on right now as Paul's writing this letter, this is going on right now as we're talking about it on this Sunday morning. Jesus is being preached all over the world and people have suffered and people, who have, and people have been killed and people have been imprisoned so that this preaching could go out. Men and women over the centuries have sacrificed greatly, they've suffered greatly so that the message could go out. He was preached among the nations. Thankfully, when he was preached among the nations, he was believed on in the world. You know, right now when we're meeting, not only are there churches all over the Inland Empire and then churches all over California and all over the United States, we're also meeting. On this Sunday morning, there are church gatherings all over the globe who have come to believe in Jesus. And that's where the sixth line gets us. He was taken up in glory. Which you might say, well, that sounds like the ascension. And, and it's possible it is. In its context, though, I think more likely what it's talking about is that Jesus was preached Jesus was believed, and then Jesus was glorified. And just as we lifted our hands to sing to him earlier on, people all over the world are doing that same thing. Paul once again points towards the idea in Jesus' life, there was suffering and then there was glory. In our lives, as we live in response to him, there's suffering and then there's glory. Um, as we take all this in, I, I, I want to read you um, a couple of my favorite verses about the church. I did this. If you were at the deeper event a couple of weeks ago, I read these verses because they blow me away. And, and first, I, I'm going to give you the overview, and then I'm going to tell you the, the kicker to these verses. It's in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, and I'm going to leave a phrase out the first time. And the phrase that I'm going to leave out is the way that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. So just listen along. He says, speaking of God, his intent was that now, and then I'm going to leave out a phrase, his intent was that now the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So go back. I know that was kind of a mouthful. Here's what he just said. He just said God had something he wanted to do. And here's the thing that God wanted to do. God wanted to make his wisdom known. He wanted to make sure everybody knew the gospel. He wanted to make sure that everybody knew the great wisdom of the one and only God. He wanted to make his wisdom known. And we might say, well, he wanted to make his wisdom known to all of us. Yeah, but that's not what he says. He says he wanted to make his wisdom known to the rulers and authorities. And so we could say, okay, not just to the common man, not just to the normal person. God wanted to make his wisdom known, not just to ordinary people, but to the people that society says are important, to the emperors and the kings and the presidents and the senators and all those people. God wanted to make his wisdom known to them. And yeah, but even that is not what Paul said. 
He said he wanted to put on display his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Anybody know who that is? That's the angels and demons. That's supernatural stuff right here. Here's God's goal. God says, here's what I want to do. I want all the angels and demons to know how profoundly wise I am. I want to put my wisdom, I want to put the gospel on display, not only for human beings to see, but for angels and demons to see. And now let me read you the part of the verse that I left out, because the part of the verse I left out tells us how he's going to do this. Going back to the beginning, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is putting the gospel on display and you know who he's putting the gospel on display through? Through us. Some of you are like, is that really the best idea? <laughs> like seriously, through us? Maybe there's a better plan. Maybe you can get eagles to carry signs or something like that. Maybe there's a better plan. Maybe dreams and visions and signs and the stars would be a better idea. God says, I want everyone to know the gospel. I want everyone to know the eternal wisdom of God, and I'm going to do that through the church. And here's where this ties in. The way historically and the way biblically that God does this is not the way that we would expect for him to do it. We would expect for God to say, all right, here's the deal. I want everybody to believe my wisdom, so I'm gonna make the lives of my people so good, so smooth, so easy, so desirable that other people will want into the family. And some of us wonder about that. We're like, all right, God, why not just make me really, really rich? If you made me really, really rich, my life would be smooth and other people would be like, I wanna become a Christian. That guy's really, really rich. Why not heal me of all of my diseases and all my aches and pains? Why not help my kids to behave better than they're behaving? Why not make my life smooth? Why not make my boss nice to me? Why not make my life go so nice and have me coast through it that other people say, I want in? That kind of makes sense to us. Like, that's how God should do it. That's not how God does it. The way that God does it is through suffering and then glory. The way that God does it is very similar to how he did it through the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, who in 2 Corinthians cryptically talks about something that he calls a thorn in his flesh. It's like, I had some problem. Doesn't spell out for us what it is. And then he says, I asked God three times to take it away. And I got to imagine that Paul's prayers were pretty good. He's probably saying, take it away. And not just saying, take it away because my life will be better. He was probably saying, take it away because I'll be better at being an apostle if you do this. And Jesus' response to Paul was this. My grace is sufficient for you. Power is made perfect in weakness. You know how God is gonna put the gospel on display through his church? It's not gonna be through the church being so healthy, so impressive to the world that people want in. It's gonna be through us suffering and people looking around and saying there must be a supernatural God to sustain them in that weakness. There must be a supernatural God that's empowering them to continue to hang on to their faith with what they've been through. It must be a supernatural God that does anything through people like that 
that don't seem to have that much to offer from a worldly perspective. So you know what, right now, if you're saying, why doesn't God just make my life easier? Maybe it's because he's putting the gospel on display through you. Maybe it's because in your weakness, not only other people, but angels and demons are going to see the power of God shine through as he sustains you in the suffering that you face. Now, this isn't super fun stuff to talk about. In some ways, I'm like, I don't really like that. I like the coast and easy way a little bit better than that. This is how God is going to put his gospel on display through us and through his church. So here's what I want to say to you as as we get ready to to have a time where there's going to be an opportunity to respond. Some of you right now are suffering. Some of you are suffering physically, and man, you are just praying for relief from it. Some of you are suffering financially and you are just longing for the day when you won't be living paycheck to paycheck. You will no longer have to ask family members to help you out. You're just longing for stability. Some of you right now are going through times where because of dynamics in the family, you're like, gosh, can't we, can we just have one holiday? Can't we just have one Thanksgiving? Can't we just have one Christmas, one Labor Day where people aren't gonna be awkward and at each other's throats? Can't we just have a time where, where everybody's following Jesus and loving each other? Can't we just have that? And you're weakened and suffering through all of that. Some of you are weak right now because in the battle of sin, you're just not sure where you're gonna turn. You're like, am I ever just gonna stop being tempted to do these things that grieve God and that grieve me? And what I wanna invite you to during this response time when the band is gonna come out and play is that at any point during this song, God may be moving in you to say, it's time to go to somebody else who also is indwelt with the Holy Spirit and to seek the power of God through this suffering. God sometimes does remove the suffering, but God's pattern is to display the gospel through our suffering, not by helping us to escape from it. And let me invite you to something else during this response time. Um, For some of you, before you even get to the point of saying, well, I'm suffering and I'm ready to suffer for what God is gonna do through me, you came with the ultimate why this morning. The ultimate why for you is saying, why does anybody believe this? Why should I believe this? Why why should I put my faith in Jesus Christ? And what I hope that you heard this morning is that the ultimate message that the church has for you is not start living a better life. The ultimate message that the church has for you is that God sent his one and only son to suffer on your behalf, to take away your sins, to go through suffering and then to have glory so that you could place your faith in him and experience the suffering of identifying with him now and the glory that will ultimately come because Jesus' vindication is our vindication. And so I know for some of you that this time when we do this, we're gonna have pastors and elders and prayer team people on either side. For some of you during this time, you're just saying, gosh, I don't wanna get up. I don't wanna go do that. People are gonna be looking at me. People are gonna be wondering what's going on. Here's what I wanna guarantee you. Almost everybody is going to think this exact thing of you if you get up and go and pray with somebody. They're gonna be thinking, thank God that they're getting freedom and help for whatever's going on in their life. You're with your church family. Don't be ashamed to come and seek help. Don't be ashamed to seek out the work that God will do as you see closeness with him and with his people. 
Let me pray for us as we prepare. Father, thank you so much that you give us hope in Jesus. Thank you that you would use unworthy people like us to put your manifold wisdom on display. We pray that you do that. We pray that you move in us and through us, and we pray that you bring healing and hope and help to us right now as we turn and respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.